1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The origins of the word ripper are uncertain as although its first recorded use was in the year 1615, to describe a primitive cutting tool used by tanners, couriers and leather workers to rip and tear apart cowhide. By the late 1800s, in London's East End, the word ripper had re-entered the modern parlance with a much darker and deadlier meaning, denoting a murderer who takes great pleasure in the slashing and tearing of his victim's flesh, as around the impoverished streets of Whitechapel, a maniac stalked the city's sex workers. And as gripping as the story of Jack the Ripper is, even today, no one knows his name, his face, his age, his description, his motivation, his method, the exact span of his murders, which victims he killed, or even if he actually existed at all. Since then, the term Ripper has only been adopted by the press to describe three British serial killers or spree killers during their reign of terror. Jack the Ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper, and a maniac so terrifying, so fascinating, and yet so unassuming that during the dark of the Blitz of World War II, across London's West End, and over just five days, he would brutally attack six women with escalating levels of sadism and violence. With much of the evidence suppressed by the government and the press for fear of unsettling a weak morale in London during the fear of the early 1940s, The true story of the West End's very own Ripper has long been lost, rehashed and retold in a rambling mix of confusingly short fragments. But after eight months of intensive research, using all the original declassified police investigation files, military records and court transcripts of the case, the puzzle is now complete. And what follows over the next few weeks is a definitive history of one of Britain's deadliest, strangest, and long-forgotten spree killers. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part one of the full, true, and untold story of The Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing on Montague Place in Marlebone, W1, a picturesque upper-class enclave hidden from the hustle and bustle of city life. Just three streets north of Oxford Street, four streets south of Baker Street, one street east of Edgware Road, and with Soho, two tube stops to the west surrounded by a rich mix of four- to six-storey townhouses, from the Regency period to the Georgian, Edwardian and Victorian era. Montague Place, which borders the ultra-affluent Montague Square, whose perfectly manicured private garden is alarmed, patrolled and protected by ornate wrought-iron gates, with a key which you can only acquire if you were schooled at Eton, holidayed at Monty. Bunked with a boy called Jollyon, or your uncle's a QC, don't you know? This area aims to keep the hoity-toity in and the hoi out. And with no beggars, no buskers and no boozers pebble-dashing its pristine paths with steamy great clumps of working-class puke, what you're left with are rows of half-empty houses Full of cocks with cooks, burks with butlers, drips with drivers, fannies with nannies, and posh pricks protected by private security, who are less likely to be robbed and more likely to be slapped, as they're manhandled back to Manchild Mansions. Being too posh to scream, too British to cry, and incapable of cacking their pants, having been born with a fine selection of silver cutlery poking out of their poo pipes. And even though, during the 60s, they actually let some scousers in, called John Lennon and Ringo Starr, being brightly lit, super clean, and regularly patrolled by the police, here in Montague Place, under the shade of the Swiss and the Swedish embassies, you will always feel safe and secure. But appearances can be deceptive as it was here in the calm of Montague Place on the cold winter's night of Sunday the 8th of February 1942 that a lone woman called Evelyn Hamilton was murdered. No one heard her scream no one saw her struggle, and no one came to help. London's West End was about to be gripped by five nights of absolute terror, where no woman was safe, as a serial sexual sadist stalked the city streets with murderous intent. And he was known as the Blackout Ripper. Born on the 8th of February 1901, Evelyn Margaret Hamilton was one of four sisters born to Lucy, a recent widow whose deceased husband's insurance had insured his family's finances after his untimely death, giving them stability and security as the economic depression of World War I loomed large. Raised in the idyllic tranquillity of the semi-rural village of Ryton in Tyne and Weir, in the northeast of England, far from the industrial sprawl and smog of the Newcastle mills and the Sunderland shipyards, Evelyn's upbringing was the epitome of picture-perfect, surrounded by fresh fruit, clean air, long walks and no crime. And being a progressive woman, in an era where the best a young girl could aspire to be was as a machinist, a maid, or married off, Lucy enrolled her four daughters in the best schools. Having studied at Skerry's College in Newcastle and the prestigious medical school at the University of Edinburgh, by 1923, 22-year-old Evelyn graduated with a diploma in chemistry and pharmacology. Having qualified as a chemist and a druggist, over the next 18 years, she focused on sharpening her skills, climbing the career ladder, and seeing more of the country, as she moved from job to job in Loughborough, Leicestershire, Surrey, London, and later in Essex. by November 1941, with the economic ravages of World War II having started to bite and rationing in full swing. Evelyn had secured herself a position as manager and pharmacist in the respected high street store of Yardley's Chemists at No. 9 Marketplace in the market town of Romford in Essex. And as qualified as she was for the job, Three months later, she would be gone. On the surface, Evelyn Hamilton seemed unremarkable and easily forgettable. As being just five foot three and a half inches in height and a slender seven stone in weight, who wore very little makeup or perfume, never smiled nor spoke and always dressed down and looked dour. As exceptionally bright as she was, she never wanted to be noticed and blended into the background. Being fastidiously neat, unfashionably dressed, and wrapped in a thick excess of shapeless woollen layers, being thin-skinned, shivery, and prone to goosebumps, even on the warmest of days, with short brown hair, a furrowed brow, and droopy brown eyes, which hung with the air of the sadness of a lonely woman who had never felt loved, was never told she was beautiful, and never once had a best friend nor boyfriend in her 41 years, she had become a shadow of her former self. Evelyn, was a very private person, who was quiet, uptight and troubled. Described by her employer, Mr Bernard Grey, as agitated, eccentric, and that she often looked as if she was frightened, being prone to bouts of insomnia and depression, she never found peace within herself, and regularly returned to her mother's house in Wrighton for long periods of rest and recuperation. But Romford was not for Evelyn. And as a bookworm surrounded by sheep farmers, here she felt mentally, physically and emotionally starved. And what she needed was some fun, love and excitement. Friday the 6th of February 1942 started like any other day. Being a creature of habit, Evelyn rose at 7.30 sharp, washed in the hand basin, nibbled on a breakfast apple, and dressed in her practical clothes she'd laid out the night before. A thick woolen jumper, a thick woolen skirt, stockings, a bra, A white vest and two pairs of undergarments to keep out the cold. With the February snow being thick underfoot and the icy winter wind howling, she wrapped up warm in a full length camel hair coat, an orange and pea green woollen scarf, a green woollen turban style hat, and black leather gloves and having applied a thin coat of pink lipstick, hardly a shade darker than her own lips, draped over her shoulder a beige canvas gas mask, standard issue during World War II, and clutching her dark leather handbag, which looked less like a fashion accessory and more like a wrapped parcel. She gave a polite smile to Mrs Eva Lever, The landlady of her middle class lodging called The Haven on Linkway in Hornchurch, and headed towards the bus stop. As always, she walked to the bus stop alone. She stood at the bus stop alone and opened the shop alone, not realising as as much as she hated her new routine, that she would never do it ever again. Being a tall, four-story brick-and-sandstone building right in the heart of Romford's busiest market, Yardley's Chemist Shop at number 9 Marketplace should have been a profitable business. But with times hard, tensions high, and the economy in disarray, as Britain entered its third year in a six-year war, 16 months after the Dunkirk evacuation and 16 months before the D-Day landings, as the invading forces took France and loomed nearer the English coast, it began to look like Germany would win. So sadly, both Evelyn Hamilton and her 14-year-old assistant, Mrs Bettina Grace Gray, were given their notice. And being paid a wage of £5 per week, roughly £250 today, Evelyn was given one month's pay, and the doors of Yardley's chemists closed forever. Two days later, she would be dead. On the morning of Sunday the 8th of February 1942, Evelyn rose at 7.30 sharp, lying alone in a single bed, in a drab little rented room. Another heavy cloud of depression hung over her. And although she hated where she lived, where she worked, and being unemployed, she quickly found work as a pharmacist in the port town of Grimsby in Lincolnshire. A place where she had no family, no friends, and would once again be a single woman in a lonely bed in an empty room. Having written a letter to her mother, Lucy, which she did every week without fail, Using the green and black pencil she'd loaned from her assistant, Bettina, and had forgotten to give back, Evelyn added a few pounds of her £20 severance pay to help her doting mother in her old age and then proceeded to pack. Into a large brown trunk, she placed her treasured possessions, her family photos of her mother and three sisters, a stack of books, mostly chemistry textbooks, a history of women's suffrage and political literature as she was an ardent socialist, and her practical clothes, all of which were neatly washed, ironed, and etched with a laundry mark, E2474. Into a medium-sized overnight bag, she placed a toothbrush, a hairbrush, a book and a change of clothes. Perched next to that sat her dark brown leather handbag, containing a white metal lighter, a veneer cigarette case, a metal compact, a pink lipstick, a set of handkerchiefs etched with an E2474 laundry mark, a purse containing what remained of her £20 severance pay, roughly one thousand pounds today next to which she'd laid out her coat hat scarf gloves and gas mask and having settled her account in full with mrs Eva Lever the landlady of the Haven politely declined a spot of tea and left instructions for a railway man to arrive on Monday morning to collect her trunk and send it to Grimsby. Evelyn sat alone on her single bed, smoked a cigarette, and opened four brightly coloured cards from her family. As not only was today her last day alive, it was also her 41st birthday. What follows are the last known movements of 41-year-old Evelyn Margaret Hamilton. On Sunday the 8th of February 1942 at 7:20 p.m. dressed in her camel hair coat, brown velvet underjacket, white vest, green jumper, brown skirt, brown stockings, black shoes and her usual two pairs of undergarments with a pea green and orange scarf and a green woolen hat, Evelyn arrived at Hornchurch train station, clutching a medium-sized suitcase, a brown leather handbag, and purchased a one-way ticket to London. Arriving at Oldgate East at 9.40pm, four hours after dusk, the city was in pitch black as the wartime blackout was in force and with all the streetlights dimmed, doors closed, curtains shut, and vehicle headlights reduced to mere slits to obscure the urban sprawl from the German bombers above. Using her trusty eight-inch metal torch, Evelyn joined a sea of people with dull bobbing lights as she took a Hammersmith and City line train nine stops west to Baker Street. with heavy winter snow crunching underfoot and an icy wind blowing in from Siberia, although she had barely a fifth of a mile further to go. Evelyn hailed a black cab and was driven by Abraham Israel Ash to the Three Arts Club at No. 76 Gloucester Place, a hotel she had stayed at many times before and always felt safe, warm. And comfortable before catching the early train to Grimsby and her new life up north. The time was ten fifteen PM. And so far, nothing out of the ordinary had happened. Her trains were on time, her cab driver was pleasant. She hadn't been short-changed swindled, followed, accosted or abused, and like many other ordinary people living in a sprawling metropolis like London, with no debts, drink or drug issues, and no enemies whatsoever, she was an entirely unlikely person to ever be murdered. Evelyn was just a shy, nervous lady, going about her business and not being a bother to anyone. With half a crown covering the taxi fare, and Abraham's tip for carrying her suitcase up the three arts club stairs, Evelyn checked into a single room for one night and didn't unpack. Instead, feeling a little peckish, having politely declined her former landlady's kind offer of a spot of tea... Evelyn asked Mrs. Kathleen Rosa-Jones, manageress of the Three Arts Club, if food was still being served. But with the kitchens now closed, Evelyn set out into the dark streets of Marleybone in search of sustenance. The time was 10.50 p.m. And with the street being cold, her stomach having rumbled too many times and the batteries of her metal torch slowly dying as the dim bulb began to fade. Evelyn hopped in a black cab and headed half a mile south to the one place that was always open and never stopped serving. This was her last cab ride to her final meal, which passed a little side street behind her hotel called Montague Place, where just a few hours later, Evelyn Hamilton would be found dead. The cab ride should have taken little more than five minutes, but Evelyn's whereabouts over the next hour are unknown. Where she went, nobody knows. Who she saw, nobody knows. What she did, nobody knows. But it's unlikely that anything suspicious or untoward happened. It's just an odd gap in the last known movements of a shy, quiet lady with very few friends, a fondness for solitude, and a deep desire to be anonymous blend into the crowd, and never be noticed. Just before midnight, at the junction of Oxford Street and Great Cumberland Street, now the site of the Cumberland Hotel, which overlooks the prestigious addresses of Marble Arch, Park Lane and Hyde Park, Evelyn entered Maison Lyonnaise, a well-respected five-storey corner house tea room, one of five in London, which was famed for its speedy service, 24-hour restaurants, live entertainment, and food hall packed full of delicatessens, chocolatiers, florists, and hair salons. Witnessed by waitress Betty Whitcover walking into the brasserie, Although she was neither seated nor served by Betty, she felt a sympathetic pang for Evelyn. A lonely woman sitting by herself amongst a sea of raucous friends, kissing couples and boozy servicemen. As she raised a single solitary toast to herself on this, her 41st birthday. According to her autopsy, her final meal was a small glass of white wine, two slices of homemade bread, and a main course, mostly consisting of beetroot. After that, Evelyn Hamilton disappeared. No one saw her talk to anyone, no one saw her leave. And she was never seen alive again.. On the following morning of Monday, the 9th of February 1942, at 8:40 a.m, local Paddington plumber Harold Batchelor and his mate William Baldwin were walking to their first job of the day. The cold air caused their cheeks to flush. The biting wind made their noses sniffle, and under their boots they crunched a fresh layer of pristine white snow as they crossed over Gloucester Place and into Montague Place. On the left-hand side of Montague Place, positioned half on the pavement, half on the road, and built in a neat little line were three surface air raid shelters one of thousands which dotted the city. Being seven and a half foot high, seven and a half foot wide, with a 23 foot long middle shelter and two half its size either side. Although these three oblong blocks made of 14 inch brick, one foot thick reinforced concrete roofs, and covered with 20 kilo sandbags wouldn't protect its terrified occupants from a direct hit. One year earlier, it had saved over 100 residents from certain death, having shielded them from the blast wave, shrapnel and falling debris of a Nazi bomb. So in Montague Place, these air raid shelters were a place of safety. Last night, though, there wasn't an air raid. No German bombers had flown by and no bombs were dropped. So apart from the occasional homeless man or kissing couple, the shelters would be empty. But as Harold and William walked by the larger middle shelter, on the snow-speckled pavement they spotted the broken top of an eight-inch metal torch, a lady's green woolen turban-style hat, and poking out of the brick entrance was a woman's left leg lying prostrate on the floor, wearing brown stockings and practical black shoes. The crime scene was promptly secured by PC John Mills, Ready for the arrival of Divisional Detective Inspector Leonard Clare at 8:55 a.m. With her handbag missing, police were uncertain who this woman was. All they knew was that she was in her early 40s, five foot three and a half inches tall, seven stone in weight, wearing a full-length camel coat, a pea green and orange woollen scarf a pale shade of pink lipstick, and that she had been murdered. Being a fastidiously neat woman, whose unfashionable clothes were professionally cleaned, pressed and etched with the laundry mark E2474, now she lay dumped in the wet gutter of the road which ran right through the centre of the damp dark shelter. Her clothes all dirty, torn and in disarray. With her left leg poking out of the entrance, her right leg remained within, raised and resting on the shelter's brickwork, her practical black shoes badly scraped and scuffed. Under her brown stockings lay fragments of brick mortar, which had broken away from the wall as in a desperate fight for her life, she had fought back as a violent struggle took place. Denying her any hint of modesty, her calf-length brown skirt had been pulled up to her hips, her torn bloomers and ripped knickers pulled down to her knees, her legs spread wide, and the genitals of a deeply private woman exposed for all to see. What hatred he'd had for this small timid woman to humiliate her in such a way nobody would know. But with her camel hair coat splayed open under her cold corpse, her white vest torn deliberately exposing her right breast, police felt That not only had she been posed, but that her punishment wasn't just a violent and sickening death, but also her humiliation. And although her pea-green and orange woolen scarf slightly masked her bruised cheeks and bloodied lips, peeping out from above, her eyes were etched with terror. Three days later, 41-year-old Evelyn Margaret Hamilton was identified at Paddington Mortuary by Mrs Kathleen Rosa-Jones, manageress of the Three Arts Club, her former employer, Mr Bernard Gray, of Yardley's Chemists in Bromford, and by her sister, Kathleen Hamilton. At 3pm that afternoon, an autopsy was held at Paddington Mortuary by the Home Office Pathologist and Father of Forensic Science, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, in the presence of Divisional Detective Inspector Leonard Clare. But the evidence presented before them was perplexing. With her handbag, purse, money, and all forms of ID missing, police considered the possible motive of robbery, but were confused as to why her attacker had left an expensive gold watch on her left wrist. With no sperm found in her vagina, police ruled out rape, as sexual intercourse had not taken place. But they couldn't account for the small amount of blood found in and around her vagina. And with abrasions to her legs, scalp and back, with a one inch cut above her left eyebrow, a two inch bruise on her right cheek, a three inch abrasion on the back of her neck, and an odd series of small cuts on her right breast. Was this a physical assault, or the work of a sexual sadist? What they knew for certain was that, owing to her body's temperature and state of decomposition, Evelyn Hamilton's time of death was roughly 1 a.m., barely an hour after the waitress, Betty Whitcover, had seen her in Maison Lyonnaise. a time which was corroborated by her broken gold watch. And that with her bloodshot eyes, her dilated pupils, her flushed swollen face, her fractured larynx, her engorged lips, fingers, and swollen tongue which jutted from the white froth of her open mouth, with a clear bruised outline of a thumb over her throat and four fingers pressed into the mottled flesh at the back of her neck. Police were certain that she had been throttled to death by a left-handed strangler. But sadly... That's where the investigation into the murder of Evelyn Hamilton stalled. As with no motive, no witnesses, and no fingerprints whatsoever, very little physical evidence beyond her torn clothes, her broken torch, some scuffed shoes, a few fragments of brick mortar, and a tin of Ovaltine tablets and a pack of Master's Safety Matches, which could have belonged to anyone as well as the fresh snow having masked any footprints, and the last hour of Evelyn's life being a complete mystery. Her shocking murder on Montague Place asked more questions than it answered, such as, if she took a cab from the hotel to the restaurant, why didn't she take one back? If she walked back, why would she do so? Alone, in the cold, and with a broken torch? And with Montague Place being barely a 10 second walk from her hotel, why would she go inside of an air raid shelter on a night when there were no air raids? Was Evelyn followed? Did Evelyn have a dark side? Had Evelyn a secret enemy? Or was 41-year-old Evelyn Hamilton a bookish woman who was too shy to talk, too timid to dress up, and too reticent for red lipstick, who hid in the background of life and had no experience of love, was this painfully lonely woman, approached by a man, flattered by his attention, brought a birthday drink, and then lured to her death by the first man ever to tell her That she was beautiful. That we shall never know. Her murder would have remained unsolved, but during that terrifying week in February 1942, across the dark-lit, bombed-out streets of London's West End, as the petrified people scurried in the darkness for fear of being murdered by the German bombers which loomed above, a sexual sadist stalked the city streets. Evelyn Hamilton was the first victim, but she wouldn't be the last, of the Blackout Ripper. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Murder Mar was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Next week's episode is part two of our series Into the Blackout Ripper. Thank you for listening and sleep well.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello. 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 Hello, my friends. Welcome to Extra Mile. This is the special part of the episode, uh, which is entirely unscripted, Um, there's no music there's no sound effects this is just a special part for those of you who stayed to the end and what i do is i give you an insight into the case that we've just discussed blackout ripper um this has been a case that i've known about for about the past three or four years i do it, i do a small section of it on the murder mile walk that i do every week um but it's always been an interesting one for me because there's very what's out there at the moment If you read about it in books, you might have seen a small amount of it on TV. Uh, There's not very much information. Um, And what is out there is often incorrect. It's slightly fudged as well, because people don't go back to the original source documents. A lot of people don't realise that in the National Archives are the original police investigation files. And they're huge. Uh, I I waded through 1,600 pages of witness statements, autopsy reports, Uh, just descriptions of everything oh god it's for me it was fantastic but it did it took seven or eight months of really thorough research Uh, and it's in no discernible order literally you get the file and you start reading and for me it's fantastic uh because Nobody has sat down and said, this is what I think. And these are the facts to back this up. You literally start at the front with the first page. You read every single document. And at the end, you start going, right, let's piece the story together. Um, Now, uh, Evelyn Margaret Hamilton. Um, She appears on the tour very briefly. um, But by the time I was doing the tour, there wasn't really a lot of information about her. I didn't know her middle name. Uh, I just about knew her age um i knew that she was a pharmacist and that was about it i so even like some of the details i had were wrong back then they said someone had said uh, in one of the the articles i'd read they said she was a pharmacist in hoban which is entirely wrong uh they got the amount of money in her purse wrong they got her age wrong they got her, her her height wrong i mean it's all details like that so going back to these original files were fantastic because i didn't know anything about her life at all i just i had a picture of her and that was pretty much it so going back to the start was fantastic learning about what an educated woman she was uh where she'd come from her sisters her dad had died all really interesting um unlike many of the other victims in the blackout ripper case there won't be spoilers in this extra mile um she was very different to the others she looked different she came from a different background she was educated she came from good money um and to learn about her life about her depression about her insomnia you know about her, her struggles and how lonely she was she was a very lonely woman i you know just like ginger ray episodes eight and nine were you know really lovely uh, lady who was a prostitute, uh, loved by everyone, really gregarious and good fun and caring. It was fascinating you'll hear an aircraft going over. I've been battling with this all day with the recordings. Aircrafts and geese. So fucking annoying. Uh, <laughs> but obviously on Extra Mile, I don't edit this out. <laughs> um, with Ginger Ray, obviously I slightly fell in love with her. And I, I think I slightly did with Evelyn Hamilton as well. I think... It was real sympathy for her because she was quite a sad woman, lived a very lonely life uh, and quite a sad way to go. Do you know, if we look at all the other cases, you look at, say, for example, let's look at the let's look at the fact that Evelyn Hamilton died inside that air raid shelter, ten literally 10 seconds from her, her hotel. Um, if you go onto any of my social media accounts, you will now see a video that goes with this. I will show you a video of how close where the air raid shelters were and the hotel was. I'm not joking when I say it's ten, it's ten seconds, if that. So she shouldn't have been in an air raid shelter on a night when there were no air raids. But if if you think about why I've deliberately in this case gone into a lot of details about her life, if you think about uh, prostitutes like episode four Dutch lair, she was a prostitute, so. Why would she have gone into an air raid shelter? She's a prostitute. She needed a place to have sex with people. That's where she would go. Same with Margaret Cook. If you remember that episode from episode 13, uh, she didn't have a flat nearby like uh, Ginger Ray did. So she would find places to have sex with clients. Sometimes in air raid shelters, sometimes sometimes in bunkers, sometimes, you know, wherever she could she could find a place. So that would be a reason why a prostitute would be in there. But, With Margaret Hamilton, it doesn't make sense that she would be there at all. Really, um, Sebastio Magnanini, if you think about that episode, a couple of uh, episode 21, he was a drug addict. He didn't want to do drugs on the street. He needed a place to do it. If if this was World War Two, you would probably find a drug addict like him having doing their drugs in a place like that but Evelyn Hamilton didn't do drugs she wasn't an alcoholic she wasn't a prostitute she didn't have enemies she was just a very lonely woman trying to hide from society trying to you know she didn't want to be seen she wanted to 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 be hidden away into the background so it doesn't make sense of why she ended up there now in this episode I deliberately go into a lot of details about her early life and what she's like as a person to lead you into that world about why did she end up in that place. It's a place where she shouldn't. She stayed in a nice hotel. She had money. She had a nice gold watch. She had a thousand pounds in her wallet. wallet. Why did she end up there? Was she lured in by a man? I think it's possible. I think it's very possible. Obviously, there's no spoilers in this, but I think it's entirely possible. And this is why I've kind of written this about about her loneliness her life never being loved that she was quite dour that it was quite dowdy she wasn't she didn't really wear glamorous lipstick she didn't want to be noticed Was well, she picked up that night in a restaurant it was a busy restaurant i'll post a picture of it online for you and you can see how busy and huge it was and the waitresses were known for being speedy so no one would pay attention to a single woman sitting by herself except betty who briefly saw her so did someone pick her up? I think it's highly possible. Do they feel sorry for her? Maybe. Was she the perfect victim for a serial killer or a spree killer or a sexual sadist? Maybe. Sad woman by herself being picked up by maybe a slightly attractive man or even any man? Maybe. Who knows? Um, with this episode, what you probably noticed is that I've put in a lot of details. Uh, now, this may seem frivolous, You may be thinking, "Mm, why is Michael mentioning so many different things? Um, And I do mention a lot. I mention about a lot of the objects were found. I mention about the clothes she was wearing. I mention about the uh, descriptions of her bags, her clothes, her handkerchiefs, all different things. These all come into play over the next couple of episodes. It may seem like it doesn't, but trust me, they do. As I was writing this episode, I had to keep a list of exhibits and evidence to make sure that I constantly re-reference them throughout the episode so in the next later episodes you can start seeing these things come past um and obviously I'm not I'm not going to spoil it for you now but uh yeah this this may seem like a slightly slow episode but the blackout ripper it starts getting very busy i've no idea how to write the next couple of episodes I really don't then this next one is gonna be difficult, as is the one after that um this might be a four parter I suspect its going to be a five parter I feel that it may be a six parter I may need to do i may be doing an episode about each victim because I think they deserve their own episode, and then when we get to the oh, I'll give too much away when we get to the end of the Blackout Ripper story what I may need to do what I'm thinking about doing is doing just a whole episode where I do a timeline episode so as you've heard every single episode about each of the victim what I'll do is an episode where I show you where the Blackout Ripper was at the moment where each victim was so we can do a kind of a side-by-side chronology I've no idea how to do that at the moment it's gonna be a nightmare, but i have to say i love the blackout ripper story it's fascinating it's never been covered properly like this before uh never in this much detail if you even have a look online you will find over the last year they've updated wikipedia but only briefly it's and it's incorrect um i really do feel like going through and changing all that um but you yeah, know this is the first time it's really been thorough so i hope you're enjoying it um, I didn't really do an experimentation on this case. Uh, I've walked the streets. Uh, I've checked the distances. Uh, I've tried to work out which routes Evelyn would have taken if she'd walked back. Uh, if she'd walked back from the restaurant to the air raid shelter on her way to the hotel, they they are en route. Um, she would have literally walked up Cumberland Road and then down Montague Place to get to her hotel. Whether she was led by a man, who knows? But, um, yeah, interesting case. Uh, I don't want to give too much away. So this will be the end of Extra Mile. Uh, Next week will be another one. It'll be a fascinating case. uh, And I hope you come back for that. Thank you for listening. That was Extra Mile. And I'll see you next week.
0: Bye-bye. Selling a little or a lot?